the title of this morning's message is Forgetting God. And this is the first in a new series we're calling Why We Seek God, Studies from the Book of Judges. It's part of a series, nine-part series of studies that link directly to our 242 group Bible studies that will be occurring during the week. And you've heard that. If you've been here for the last several weeks, you've heard about the 242 studies. We've done this now for several summers. And I would encourage you, if, uh, if you've not wanted to be a part of one and for whatever reason didn't sign up, I don't know if there are any slots left or not, Mike. There's a few. So if you'd like to be a part of one, uh, there's still an opportunity to sign up and plug in and would encourage you to consider that. Uh, I, I preach a message. I believe that God wants to say to us as a congregation, and then we look at that passage in a, in a broader context in the 242 Bible studies. And, and so they take the Sunday morning uh, study and they take it deeper and the fellowship in those groups is rich and encouraging uh, and so I would encourage you to try it out if you have never done so but this morning we're looking at Judges chapter 2 and we're going to look at the first 10 verses Judges 2 uh, the first 10 verses and the context is really chapter 1 and 2 together but we're going to focus on on these first 10 verses and I want to begin this morning by reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 in Judges. If you go to the front of the Bible, you'll find the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or the Torah in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Judges is the first one after that. And so that makes it easy to find. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt, and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Would you pray with me? Father, we need you to speak to us and Lord all week long you have stirred my heart and for weeks you have prepared us as a church for this hour and this moment and the next two months of studies father my prayer is that you would speak through me as just an instrument and father you would work through my failures and my failings and Father, I want to hear your word as well. And so, with the people of God, we stand ready to hear your voice. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the truth and you would apply it to our hearts. Remove every distraction. Remove every excuse. And enable us, Father, to hear you and to respond to you. And Father, each of us, we need to respond. You have a word for each of us. And so, we trust you to speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. On Tuesday, June the 6th, that day will mark 73 years since June 6, 1944, D-Day, when the Allies, 150,000 plus strong, landed on the beaches of Normandy, a 50-mile stretch of that beach, and Americans were involved, some 60,000, 70,000 Americans, some 6,000 ships were involved, uh, 
13,000 paratroopers, 11,000 aircraft. On just the Omaha section of the beach where Americans went on shore, some 34,000 Americans, they encountered 6,000 landmines in the water, some 12,000 hedgehogs, which were three steel cross girders that were sitting on the sand. They had 200 yards of open, exposed sand to cross before they could get to the base of the cliffs, 100, 170 feet tall, well defended, more casualties lost at Omaha Beach than at any other section on D-Day. And it turned the war around. I mean, in order to defeat the enemy, there had to be another front opened in Europe. And so the Germans knew D-Day would come, and, and the Allies had six different fake plans that were leaked out to the German authorities. So they would have no idea where the landing would occur. Every precaution was taken. It was a costly move, but it was a much-needed mission. Now, I want you to imagine, what if the troops landing on the beach, seeing the obstacles, had said, this is too hard. This is too difficult. I didn't sign up for this. And so they stopped. They stopped right there. And then what if, after stopping for a while, they said, you know, this is a nice beach. This is not a bad place to live, northern France. And so we're going to settle down here. And instead of defeating the enemy, we're going to befriend the enemy. We're going to live with them. I mean, let's have peace. Let's coexist. Let's everybody get along. And then they got married. And what if those same soldiers got married? They began to have children. And those children grew up in that environment. What would they remember about D-Day? What would they remember about the mission? Would they ever think about fighting an enemy in that kind of environment? If that had happened, we would say that entire generation forgot their mission. As I get older, I find it more and more difficult to remember things. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so I use a lot of these. Um, sometimes I forget where I put these. But I make notes and I, I stick them in my pocket. I put them in my wallet so that the next time I spend some money, which is more often than I would like, I see the note. Uh, I put them in my Bible. I put them on my other notes of things to remember, uh, I stick them everywhere. When Gail and I, we, we, we had six children, when they were all younger at home and we would leave church on Sunday, one of my great fears is that we would leave one of the children behind. That was a real possibility with us taking two cars every Sunday. And so before we left, back then we had those phones where you push the talk, it's kind of like walkie-talkies. I'd say, Gail, over. How many do you have? You know, take a head count before we leave the property. I'll make sure I've got everybody I'm supposed to have. She has everybody she's supposed to have. We don't want to forget things. Judges is a book about a generation of the people of God that forgot God. And this, this occurs in the context of a group of people who were supposed to experience not forgetting God, 
but actually the, the incredible victory of God moving into the promised land. And what instead happens as we read through the book of Judges, and this will be more clear next week as we dig deeper into this, this book, is we discover that one generation disobeys God. The next generation forgets God. And then there comes a generation who are experiencing the consequences of the failure of the first generation, the forgetting of another generation, and then this generation comes and the consequences of being a disobedient people of God are so great, God has allowed these consequences to come, the pressure is so great that they begin to cry out to God, and then God in his mercy comes and delivers them with someone called a judge. Now, judges were actually an office that were established by Moses not long after he began to lead Israel out of Egypt. They were men primarily. There is a woman we're going to see, Deborah, later on in the text. Often we don't think of judges carrying out whatever judgment in our culture. Judges make decisions, somebody else carries out the, the punishment. But in that culture, the judge did both. And in this particular case, the judges would be that person that God raised up to deliver the people of God who were in crisis because of their own fault, because of their own forgetfulness, but the judge would come and deliver them, hence the title of the book, Judges. But the entire book is a story of a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and we'll see that as we move through the text. You say, well, Pastor, why is it important that a Christian read a book like that in the Old Testament? Because what God has done in the Old Testament was written down for you and me to learn from them, to learn lessons from them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Now all these things happened to them, and he's talking about this generation. All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. And the word admonition means to put something in the mind that wasn't there before, like a warning. And so the entire Old Testament, if you do nothing else with it, you can approach the history books of the Old Testament with that understanding. There's an example here for me to learn from. There's something here that God wants me to know and apply to my life and my walk with him right now in 2017, even though this occurred some 3,400 years ago. And so it's a warning. And so I've got to ask the question, are we experiencing any of this? Is God allowing enemies, and we're not talking about human enemies, but enemies that manifest themselves in many different ways, is God allowing enemies to come in and oppress the people of God? Are we experiencing the consequences possibly for having been a generation that is forgetting God every day? Are we influencing people to know God as the people of God, or are we being influenced to be more like them? Maybe as an individual you're running from God. And even as you sit here, you realize, I've been running from God, and God is speaking to me, and he's waking you up. He's allowed some consequence to come into your life, and he's getting your attention. How will you respond? What is God saying to you? When the Bible, in this, in this uh, book of Judges, we have come to a place where we see God raised up in Genesis 12. He raised up Abraham. And in his interactions with Abraham, he made promises to him that there would be generations that would follow 
that would become the people of God. And at one point, he's talking to Abraham, and he says, look, they're going to go to a particular land. They're going to inherit this land, this promised land, this land where you're living. But it's going to be several generations from now. In fact, specifically, he says four generations from now, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What he means by that statement is that God is a patient God. And that God was being patient even with the Canaanites. And we're going to see why he was being patient with them. But he was being patient with them. They had an opportunity to repent as wicked and as evil and as ungodly as they were. And so God raises up his people and they begin to flourish in a place called Egypt. When a whole generation wound up there, and for several generations they grew there, and they multiplied there, and they were in slavery there, and they came to a place where they were crying out to God, and God delivered them through Moses. You know the story, the parting of the Red Sea, how they escaped the attack of Pharaoh and his armies, how the sea came back and covered them up, killed them all. How they had the opportunity at first to go straight into the promised land, it was a 12-day journey from where they were, But it wound up taking 40 years because that particular generation became afraid to enter into Canaan and do what God said they could do. But in those 40 years, God was faithful to them. Even though they had been a disobedient, a generation that had complained, God was faithful and every day manna fell from the sky. They were able to eat. When they needed water, God gave them water. When they encountered an enemy, God enabled them to defeat that enemy. And for 40 years, one generation fell to the ground, another generation was raised up. This is the generation that was raised up. They they had witnessed some of that. Some of them were young as children. They had witnessed those great mighty works of God. And then they had followed Joshua through, through the Jordan River, and God had parted it just like the Red Sea. They had followed Joshua, and they had watched the walls of Jericho, an incredible fortress, fall down merely by walking around it for seven days and praising God. And they saw victory after victory, and now that generation had had a toehold, a beachhead in the land that was covered up with enemies. And Judges, this first chapter and second chapter, is this very moment when are they going to continue on and do the thing that God had said they would do? Or would there be some other kind of response, some other kind of failure? In verse 2 we read, of chapter 2 it says you'll make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land no covenant that means don't make any deals with them and then it says you shall tear down their altars now what is God's problem with the Canaanites and making deals with them and tearing down their altars what is the problem that God has with the Canaanites well aside from the fact that they were all into sorcery and magic and trying to manipulate the supernatural using human means and and aside from the fact that they were caught up in all kinds of of evil practices, uh, their, their lifestyle was modeled after their fertility gods and they had all kinds of sexual um, aberrations and sin that they were expressing. Not only homosexuality and adultery and, and your garden variety sins, but they were into boys being abused by men. They were into sex with animals. They were into all kinds of things. The very worst thing that they did was sacrifice children on altars to their god Moloch. Moloch was a god of the underworld, and he, he had the head of a bull, and he would stand. He had his, his arms stretched out, and they would take an infant, some children as old as four years old, and they would lay them on that arms with a roaring fire underneath, and they would burn that child alive. 
The archaeologists have demonstrated that they did this to thousands of children. This was not once or twice. They did this to thousands of children. Yeah, God had a problem with the Canaanites. And the assignment of the people of Israel was to go in and to drive them out. And if they resisted, they were to wipe them out. They weren't to make a deal with them. They weren't to worship their gods. They were to tear down their altars. And God didn't want his people infected with this false religion, this false notion, this culture of evil that had rejected God. That's why God said in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. So that's what this story is about. God is giving a land to his people, a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it's a great story. But God is doing much more than that. He's bringing judgment on the most evil kind of wicked people you can imagine. He's been patient with them for hundreds of years. And they've not repented. Well, chapter 1, which we have not read, chapter 1 is the initial story of how the people of God came into this promised land. And at first, everything looks good. Everything looks rosy. Uh, Judah goes first, and they partner with Simeon, the tribe of Simeon. They go in, and they have some initial victories. But then the record goes south really quick because over and over again it says that they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land, tribe by tribe by tribe. In verse 19 of Judah, it says, The Lord is with them, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. That's verse 19. Benjamin, verse 21, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem. They couldn't drive them out. They couldn't drive the inhabitants out. They conquered them. They beat them. They whooped them. They couldn't drive them out. Manasseh, verse 27, the Canaanites, it says, were determined to dwell in that land. So what'd they do? Well, they made them pay up. I mean, living people at least are profitable, and they made them pay tribute. You can read about that. Uh, it goes on, and now, and now something interesting begins to happen. Uh, in verse 29, we read about Ephraim. It says, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. They couldn't drive them out. And now the Bible very specifically says, so the Canaanites dwelt among them. And so now you've got the enemy living among the people of God. Zebulun, very, something very similar. They, they forced their, these people to pay tribute. But it says, so the Canaanites dwelt among them in verse 30. Asher, they left seven cities. In their territory that God had given to them, they left seven cities in the control of the Canaanites. And the Bible says so, and this is interesting, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. See, something shifted there. The Canaanites were living among the people of God. Now the people of God, it says, are living among the Canaanites. And then verse 33, Naphtali, it says they dwelt among the Canaanites, but they did get some tribute money from them. And Dan, poor Dan, verse 34, it says the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. They couldn't even take anything. I mean, they, they were the biggest losers. And later on, they did get big enough, and they conquered the Amorites, made them pay tribute, pay taxes. But in the beginning, they just were defeated. point is that the generation that had entered the land with Joshua, they had seen God part the Jordan. They'd seen the walls of Jericho fall, but they had lost something. Something had been lost. What was happening? 
Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, Judah is the first place where we begin to see kind of a crack in what should have been a boring story of victory. It should have been a boring story of victory. One victory after another victory after another. Look at verse 19, chapter 1. So the Lord was with Judah. You got that? Now, if the Lord's with you, what does that mean? What can you do if God is with you? You should be able to do anything. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. Now, that would have been tough. People in the mountains are tough to drive out. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. It says God was with them. That chariots of iron. Now, what's wrong with this picture is that in Joshua 17, verse 18, they were given a promise before this battle. The promise is this, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Forget the chariots. The chariots are no big deal. Why weren't they able to deal with the people in the lowland? Why weren't they able to deal with the people who had iron chariots? Whoa. Well, the Bible tells us they could not drive out, listen, but they could not, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. See, iron chariots were a game changer in their mind. Suddenly they realized, and I don't know why it took them so long to figure this one out, but suddenly they realized, in my own strength, with my own resources, and with my own abilities, I can't beat these people. I can't drive out this enemy in my own strength. Now, the truth is, it was always that way. But I think they had a realization. They had an epiphany. And they began to see the way things are. That God, they should have seen that God was the one who was making it happen all along. They should just bless the Lord, praise the Lord, and thank God. But they didn't do that. The truth is, they never could do it on their own. It took the iron chariots for them to realize that you can't trust in yourself. You can't take care of you. You've never been able to take care of you. But I don't know when the iron chariots are going to come in your life. They've been in mine a few times. And I realized that I couldn't take care of me. And I needed God. I've always needed God. The problem wasn't their lack of strength. It was a lack of faith. They weren't looking at God anymore. They were looking at themselves, but they could not. The point is you can't control sin. You can't conquer sin on your own. You can't befriend sin. You can't coexist with sin. The only thing you're supposed to do with sin is drive it out of your life with God's power, with his might, with his promise, with his authority. It's the only thing you can do with sin. And Judges makes that really clear. Well, Judges 1, if you read through it, I hope this afternoon, tomorrow, or before you go to your 242 group meeting, you'll do that. But if you read Judges 1, it sounds like they did a reasonably good job. It really does. You know, nobody's perfect. They, they got it mostly right. They won some battles. Uh, they did make them pay up. 
and it's like a big spin job. I would call it fake news. <laughs> but what happens, everything changes when God weighs in and tells the truth. And in Judges chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. God weighs in in judgment on what's really happening and tells them the truth. Look at verse 1 again. I want to read this passage again. Then the angel of the Lord, he sent a messenger, came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And I think God's asking a really good question. They had a truckload of promises. They had a vast array of experiences where God had delivered them over and over and over again. Why have you done this, he says. He was going to work through them to drive out the enemy. He had promised it. He had demonstrated it. It wasn't done all at once, but they were going to do it incrementally. And they quit. Why have you done this? Why have you stopped short of the goal? Why have you quit your mission? The truth of the matter is, is that when God is with you and God is with the people of God, doing the will of God, nothing can stop them except their own sin. And that's what was happening in this moment. In verse 3, God continues. He said, therefore I said, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side. And their God shall be a snare to you. God had said back, and you can just jot it down, back in Joshua 23, God had said, if you don't drive them out, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cause them to be thorns in your side, and and their gods are going to be a snare to you. What does that mean? Well, if a thorn is in your side, it aggravates the fire out of you, doesn't it? It's a constant grinding agony and pain and it's relentless and it doesn't ever stop every time you move everything you do every single day it hurts and he says because you don't drive them out this is what's going to happen they're going to be a thorn in your side they're gods they're gods you didn't trust me and their gods are going to entrap you they're going to be a snare to you and the essence of any kind of a snare is that you've lost your freedom you've lost your self-determination you've lost Everything that God intended for you to have in terms of freedom, you have lost it when you begin to go after other idols and you begin to love other things and give your affection to other things and all your heart and all your mind and all your soul to other things except the Lord God. It's slavery. goes on in verse 4. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel. Look at this. The people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochum, and they, they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. What's really fascinating to me is how this generation responds when when God calls them out. 
Oh, there's weeping. Oh, God, we have blown it. We have messed up. There's, there's weeping. And, and then there's sacrifices. Oh, God, we're sorry. We'll, we'll, we're, here's some sacrifices. But then what did they do? They went home. Nothing changed. They continued living the way that they had been living. They shed tears. They're they're still serving God. But every single day, they are surrounded by their failure. Every day. They're living without victory, just memories of victories. Dear one, I don't know how old you are or how many victories you've experienced in your life, but God intends for you to experience victory right up to your last breath. Some of you all look back at the glory days, all the great things God did in your life when you were a young man, young woman, or maybe as a young adult, what he did in your life as a teenager. Listen, God is not finished with you. God still has victories for you to win. I think to underscore, you go back and read chapter 1, Caleb was older than most of the people in this room, and he was still winning victories. I realize now I'm older, I'm I'm not as old as some of you, but I'm older than a lot of you. And I look back as my, at myself as a young man, and dear ones hear me, and I'm serious. There's some battles I should have fought harder when I was younger. There are things I should not have acquiesced to when I was a younger man. There are things where I should have kept pressing, should have kept asking, should have kept seeking that I find myself learning at 56 things I could have learned when I was 17. Have we done everything that God intended for Wind Baptist Church to do in Wind, Arkansas? Are we finished? Are we done? Has God truly, was his intent, is it some hundred years ago they they would build a building on a piece of property and people would come each Sunday and would sit and sing a song and go home and that was all that God intended to accomplish and win Arkansas? Is that we would sit down, settle down, live comfortable lives surrounded by the evidence of our failed mission. Every day, every week. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Lord's done that he's, not, that he's finished with us. But i got to ask the question, have we have forgotten God? Have we forgotten our mission? Have we have forgotten the warfare that we are in and that we have a very real enemy? Have we forgotten how to fight? How to pray through until God answers? Have we forgotten and settled down with sin in our lives that God has said to drive it out of our life, to kill it, to mortify it, to not feed the sin monster, to not play with sin, not assume that a little bit of sin is okay because after all, God's going to forgive us anyway and nobody's perfect. Are we making excuses? Well, they have chariots of iron. It's just too hard, Pastor. You don't understand what I live with. You don't understand what I deal with. Are we making excuses? Then we have forgotten God. Let me tell you what's going to happen to the next generation. I don't have to... Make it up. It tells us in verse 8. 
We're going to produce a generation that forgets God. Look at verse 8. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Anybody gotten that far yet? And they buried him within the border of his inheritance, Timnath-Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, listen, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. They forgot who he is. They forgot what he has done. A whole generation. Teenagers, I don't call you out very often. Young adults, are you going to be that generation? Despite what we may have done right or what we may have gotten wrong as an older generation, are you going to be the generation that forgets God? Is this talking about you? A generation that might forget who God is or what God has done? You know what happens when that happens to a person? To a, you may grow up in a church. And how many people have we seen grow up in a church and walk away, never to return? You know what's going to happen? We lose the plan of God. We lose the power of God. We lose the presence of God. We live with the enemy that we were supposed to defeat. We play on battlefields where we were supposed to fight. You live a smaller life and you content yourself with smaller territory than what God had intended for you. God intends an abundant life for you, but you wind up settling for the smaller life. Don't settle for the smaller life. Don't forget God, who He is, what He has done, what He wants to accomplish in your life. Our children need to see moms and dads and grandparents that have faith in God. They need to see men and women. It should not be unusual to them to hear you pray, to see you take your needs to God and trust Him, to see you on your knees crying out to Him. It should not be strange. It should not be weird to them to hear you talk about your faith in God and things that you have seen God do in your life. It should not be weird. It should not be strange. It should not be odd. We should be, if anything else, we should be the generation. We're going to talk more about this in the next few weeks. But we should be the generation that wakes up and realizes what's happening. And we say, oh God! Oh God, come! The enemy is all around us. We see the manifestations of the world, the flesh and the devil, all around us. We see it in us. We should be the generation that cries out. What are you trusting God for? Let me close with this question. What can we do? What can we do? And dear ones, I tell you what. It's hard to preach a message like this where I feel like I'm sitting in the pew and not standing in the pulpit. Say, well, Pastor, I think the Holy Spirit touched my heart today. He got a hold of me. Listen. I'm with you. What can we do? Number one, when obedience appears impossible, don't stop. 
I don't know where you are, how old you are, or what you're dealing with. I don't care how much debt you're in, how much money you don't have, how much money you have, what kind of obstacles you have, what kind of difficulties that you're facing. Listen, when those difficulties come, don't stop doing what you know God wants you to do. Don't stop. Keep on keeping on. Some of you stopped a long time ago. You're going to have to go back and say, oh, God, I stopped here. What's the next step? When obedience seems impossible, don't stop. That's what they did. They've got iron chariots. We can't do it. We can't handle it. Too much. I can't do this. I can't do this. I quit. I stop. Don't stop. Secondly, finish what God put you here to do. The Bible tells us that God made every person with a purpose, a plan, not a general plan that applies to anybody who's a human being, but a very specific plan for your life. God has a purpose for you. One of the verses right after, I, I think I shared last week or recently in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God lest any man should boast. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Then it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. What does that mean? It means he's got works for you to do, specifically for you to do. He made you for those works. Are you doing what God made you to do? Finish what God put you here to do. And then number three, remember God and forget you. Get your eyes on him. Pick up his word. Remember who he is. Talk to some older, experienced saints of God. Say, tell me your victories. Tell me your stories of things that God has done in your life. If you have questions about how to walk with God, seek somebody out that appears to walk with God. Learn from them. Get a spiritual elder in your life. Draw from them. Ask them questions. Let them invest in you. Let them pour into you. But remember God. And when that trouble comes, don't look at what you got. Don't look at who you are. Forget you. Remember God. Because the moment you take your eyes off of him, you've lost. And I've lost. And dear ones, I believe as individuals and as a church, we've got to get our eyes on him. We need to remember who he is. We need to look at him. We need to see his majesty. We need to see his power. We need to look around us and realize that everything that I see in this world reflects some element of the thinking of God. It may be corrupted by sin. It may be damaged by creation and mankind. I get all of that. But God made it all. And everything's an expression of his thought. And it is beautiful. Before we close, I just want to offer a word of hope. You may look at your life and you say, Pastor, I'm too far gone. I have, I have settled down with the enemy. I have, I have had the enemy in my life for so many years. I have, I have failed over and over again repeatedly, and I have messed up my life, and I have, I have paid a price for it. My family has paid a price for it, and I can't get over what it, what it feels like to have failed so miserably and Pastor, all that I hear you saying to me is that I have failed and that I have messed up. Listen, the entire book of Judges is about God coming to a people who do not deserve it 
are coming to a people who do not deserve it and delivering them from their oppression and their enemies. So I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know what you're feeling. But I know that God is a gracious God. He is a God of grace. And this book tells us that he is gracious in dealing with people who aren't even looking for him, aren't even crying out for help. And we're going to see occasions where God steps in and he delivers them. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. The truth is, if you had never messed up, you still need Jesus. It takes as much of the blood of Jesus on his cross to save you as it does the worst sinner on the planet. You and I all stand in the same place. The Bible tells us that because he's a God of grace and mercy, the ultimate deliverer was Jesus Christ. When we face an enemy too great for us to defeat, I cannot defeat the power of sin. I cannot overcome the penalty of sin, judgment for what I deserve. But Jesus comes and he takes my punishment on the cross. And not only does he carry my sins away, but when I put my trust in him, the Lord Jesus came to live inside my soul. And through his Holy Spirit, he is changing me. He's changing every Christian here who is trusting him, and he can transform your life. I don't care who you are what you've done. So in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Pastors will be standing here at the front. We don't do this because we need the exercise of standing in front of a crowd. We do this because we believe every week that there are people who need prayer, there are people who need encouragement, there are people who need the Word of God, and we are here to encourage you and to counsel you and to support you. Some of you need to be down here praying. You do. Some of you need to come and say, Oh God, and it may be somebody on your heart that God's putting on your heart. It may be for yourself. It may be you need to grab a friend and come down here and pray. But we need to cry out to God, dear ones. We don't have it in ourselves to solve our problems. We don't. And so whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever it is you're facing, why aren't we crying out to God? How hard does it have to get? We're going to see when we get to Deborah and Barak that the people were screaming out to God for relief. Oh God, I pray it doesn't come to that. We need to turn to him with all our heart. Jesus said, love me with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That means you're going to have to take it away from everything else. You're going to have to take that love away from everything else. You're going to have to give it to him.